no matter what model you've chosen for your business, nothing happens till you sell something. What a founder needs to understand is that there's lots and lots of opportunities to grow, you have to let go. If you don't want to be disrupted, your business needs to pivot. I love being a mentor. Everybody wants to, to feel they have a purpose in life. Every time I've succeeded in my life, it's because someone has, has put their head on a block and said, the easy decision is to do this, but I'm going to go and give Dave a go. What lessons have mattered the most through your career and life as well? Yeah, well, I think... Private markets investments are investors can find some real value. I find the best way to learn is learn from someone who's done it before and given it a go. Hi, I'm Travis Miller, host of Grow Your Wealth podcast. Thanks for joining me here today. On these podcast sessions, we're gonna talk through how uh, certain investors have navigated the bumpy road of investing, whether it be through business or investments in general. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Grow Your Wealth Podcast, where we dive into the stories and strategies of the business world's most brilliant minds. Today, we're beyond excited to welcome a true titan of the fintech industry, Dave Shane, from OAF Ventures to our show. For over 30 years, Dave has been a powerhouse in the startup scene, founding, mentoring, investing in some of the most exceptional startups out there. He's the mastermind behind Comtech Communications, which he saw for a staggering enterprise value of over $1 billion, marking it as Australia's first tech unicorn. David's journey is not just about big numbers, it's about big lessons too. In 2021, he shared his wealth of knowledge in his first book, The Dumbest Guy at the Table. It's a goldmine of advice for anyone dreaming of starting their own company. And here's the kicker. David lives by two core principles that have guided his incredible journey. Face reality as it is, not as it was or as you wish it to be, and change before you have to. Wise words from a man who's been there and done that. So buckle up, listeners, as we dive into a conversation with Dave Shane, a man who's not just witnessed, but shaped the tech landscape in Australia. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for that, Travis. Appreciate you coming in. Now, thanks for joining us. You've had a fascinating journey in both your personal and professional life. As a starting point, it's interesting to hear what you're up to day to day now. Give us a quick overview of what you're doing currently at OIF Ventures. So today I'm a one of the co-founders and a partner at OIF uh, Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital fund. And we established that in 2016 when the government pretty much um, uh, changed the tax rules to make it extremely tax effective for high net wealth to invest in, in startups. Essentially, um, you literally get a 10% uh, tax off offset. So if your tax bill was yeah, $100,000 and you invested $50,000 in the venture capital fund, you can deduct $5,000 of your tax bill. Second of all, if we're able to convert that $100,000 into $500,000, the $400,000 is 100% capital gains tax-free. So a, a flood of money came into the, the whole ecosystem uh, at about that time. And uh, we created our first, or established our first fund and uh, and yeah, it's been an amazing time to be in the startup scene for lots of reasons. Yeah. In the short period of time, they've been, yeah, it's gone from easy money to unbelievably challenging for for founders to um, um, to, to raise capital, and uh, it's certainly yeah, our our founders and founders over the last period have, have literally gone through the ringer with uh, COVIDs and. Uh, 
high interest rates, inflation, etc. So it's been a good time sure. to be in the industry. Yeah, it's definitely a tough environment at the moment. It's interesting you mentioned the tax elements, right? It's when investing, it's interesting. You want to find a tax favorable environment to invest. And that's yep. what happened in 2016. What's critical and what you've demonstrated at IF Ventures, you've got to make money as well for your investors. There's no it's been tax favorable unless you get the right types of trades, the right investments, because you've got to make money in a way to make, you know, ultimately to pay tax. Yeah. And it's absolutely, and I always say when we, you know, we have a very simple um, philosophy in our fund. We believe we've got two customers. We have a founder at the one extreme. Uh, and at the other end, we have, we have people who've entrusted us with their capital and somehow we have to keep them both, both happy. And, you know, so from the founder point of view, you have investors, as you say, are easy to keep happy. If they give you a hundred dollars and you convert it into $500, they're going to be pretty happy. Um, you know, on our founders, we see money or capital as the, as the commodity. There's, there's a hundred different places you can get, you know, a good founder will be able to raise capital from today in Australia. Yeah, our job is to say, how do we, what value we do we add to a portfolio company aside from just saying, here's the capital. For sure. That's good. Now you've been involved in investing in founding, mentoring and investing startups for 30 years. What's your secret to maintaining a competitive advantage? I think it's being authentic. I think in business, it's really, you know, it's uh, what you, what we say is what we do. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe we've ever over-promised and under-delivered, you know, and, uh, and I feel as long as we can do that, you know, I work with a um, couple of younger partners. I'm yep. the old guy with the gray hair. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I have another partner, Jeff, who was, you know, we always say he's, he's got no hair and I've got gray hair for, you know, for good reason. We have the experience, but we've got two younger partners, uh, Jerry and, and uh, Lawrence. When we raised our third fund, um, uh, I think we raised a hundred million dollars in 24 hours and the guys were shocked. And I said, I'm not surprised as long as we have unbelievably happy founders and unbelievably happy investors, you'll be a fund 26. The day we lose sight of that is the mm. day we, you know, we may not have a fund anymore. So we keep, we have to keep working every day yeah. to make sure that we deliver value for our founders who in turn are able to make, you know, build great businesses and exit at a, at a good outcome for our investors. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I've met, I've met your team, and I can see sort of why people trust trust you guys and are investing with you. And the track record speaks for itself. So I think it's important. That's uh, why you've got this far in the journey. Now, it's always interesting for our listeners to take a step back and sort of understand your background and where you came from. Are you able to give us a bit of a background, even as far back as your early family and schooling? I understand your youngest child in the uh, family. Uh, I've heard you say you're not very good at school. It's interesting if you just take us through that little bit of that journey. So definitely wasn't good at school, and uh, yeah, and this is absolutely not a not em embellished at all because I, I I got an email from the headmaster of my old school mm -hmm. in South Africa, and he said, uh, "Hi David, I'll be coming to Australia." He said, "I so fondly uh, recall how you excelled academically. Your feats on the sports field were no different." Mm -hmm. And he said, "Your sister was also such an asset to the school." My reply was, dear Mr. Wolf, I neither excelled academically nor on the sports field, nor do I have a sister, but I'm still happy, I'm still happy to catch up. So, um, yeah, I, I think I was, you know, I was pretty young when I, yeah, I, I did my HSC or matric, what we yeah. called it in South Africa. I literally finished when I was 17. And, uh, you know, there's some kids who are 17 going on 21. 
I was you know, 17 going on 14. I had no interest in school, very immature, not motivated at all. And you know, I'll actually say in South Africa we had national service at the time. Gotcha. And I actually believe that that national service saved me. Gotcha. I, I grew up in those two years and I have three boys and I've always said I'd hate any of them to ever have to go to war, but I really believe that that national service was an amazing opportunity for me to grow up and really understand what, what I wanted to do when I, we eventually grew up. Gotcha. And um, so my dad was an accountant by profession. Um, yeah, I think in his day, if you could do the books in a company, you were regarded as, as mm -hmm. the hero. So from the day I was born, you know, when most young kids were, you know, at two and three were people saying, what are you going to do when you're big? Most kids were saying a fireman or a policeman or a, I was going to be an accountant. So rugby player in, uh, in South so, Africa at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, you go. So I um I became an accountant. I studied accounting, and by the way, when I say the army saved me, when I did get to university, um, I was nineteen, and I know it sounds crazy today, but I honestly still remember thinking to myself, David, you're old, and you've done bloody bugger all with your life. And it was the first time that I actually knew how to study. I mean, South Africa, if you were white education was 100% free. Mm. And my middle brother still told my dad, I'm not sure why you're letting David go to university. It's not university material. Mm. And, uh, and um, I remember that first day at university, um, the professor in accounting lecture said, uh, look at the person on your left and look at the person on your right. Only one of you is going to pass this year. And I made up my mind that that was going to be me. And I really did never failed um, at a subject at university and yeah, um, did a Bachelor of Commerce. It was a three-year degree and following that, I did a Bachelor of Accounting degree where I worked at a chartered firm. I worked at Pricewaterhouse um, gotcha. for, for three years. We had to work at a, we called it Articles in South Africa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, yeah, I worked at Pricewaterhouse and came almost to the day, Travis, I came on November, I think today is November the 16th, I arrived in Australia on November the 8th, 1986, and always think to myself, how lucky am I to live in this unbelievable country? That's good. So how old were you then? Was it 26? I just, I just turned 20s. 26, yep. yeah. Gotcha. That's great. And continuing on that sort of career journey, right? Turned up in Australia, 26, accounting degree, worked at PwC. They were uh, only PW, that's our old oh, really? Travis. It was just, yeah, there was, <laughs> there was, I was, uh, I was with Price Waterhouse and can't remember when they merged with Coopers and Librand to become PwC, but I was I'd left already by then. Gotcha. Then uh, what happened from then? Obviously, we get to when uh, you established Comtech Communications, but we we're in between, you know, arriving and, and then how did what happened? Yes, yeah, so I had a job. I I thought I'd hit the jackpot. I, I met someone through my dad actually that uh, lived in a lived in Australia, an ex-South African, lived in Australia, they offered me a job as national sales manager of, of a computer software company. It was in the business software and I thought, how lucky am I? I am gone from an article clock in South mm. Africa to national sales manager of this, um, yeah, this computer company. I love computers, by the way. That's what I did when I was at Pricewaterhouse. I was putting, yeah, I had a boss who really gave me a go. He backed me, let me set up a um, a computer division within the small business division at Price Waterhouse. So I did very little auditing and <laughs> uh, and a lot of implementation of computer systems before they were as pervasive as they are today. Yeah. 
And that was literally my hobby. I loved, absolutely was fascinated by what you could do with computers. So when I got this job in Australia doing, it turned out that it wasn't a great job. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't get paid well. I uh, had no input into, you know, I, had some, I thought some pretty good ideas, which my boss told me, mate, you pay to do, not to think. <laughs> and I hated going to work. I don't know if you've ever had a yeah. job where it feels like someone's pushing you out the door. And, uh, you know, turned out that was the luckiest break of my life because I was getting paid $2,000 a month. And I thought if I ever wanted to start my own company, the opportunity cost was yeah, sure. so low. Um, you know, I had the opposite of what you'd call golden handcuffs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, took, took a punt and said, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a go and started Comtech, wow. uh, as a, in those days, computers were being used primarily for word processing, for doing spreadsheets, for doing a little bit of what I did, but computers weren't, mm. they weren't linked. Gotcha. It was just, you know, an accountant would be doing, uh, using, uh, a spreadsheet, a PA would be using a word processor. And uh, I got into um, local area networking when people wanted to start networking those computers so they can share information, share um, yeah, peripherals like printers, etc. And uh, I was lucky enough to get into an industry that was about to explode. And uh, yeah. Did you have to do any you know, formal education to learn or you just taught yourself how to I, uh, plug it all together? I didn't learn anything. I always say if I, I'm, I'm not technical at Did all. You? I always say if I change a plug at home, my wife takes the family outside in case I blow <laughs> the house apart. So I, uh, I understood what the benefits and what the, the, the opportunity and what problem networking solved. But I didn't understand how to install a network. I didn't, I'm not, as I say, I am. Um, so I, I surrounded myself with people who did. And uh, so I started on my own. Uh, and I actually outsourced a little bit of the tech, the tech work for the first six months. And in fact, I bumped, there was a guy that I bumped at the Art Partners Conference, uh -huh. um, a guy, Dave Woodcock. Yeah, uh, gotcha. I, yeah. I literally shared um, Dave and he had a partner, um, um, Cole Williamson. They uh, had a company called Comaxis Corporation, and uh, I literally shared one of the desks. Their phone number was 296196. In those days, they had a rotary phone system. Yeah. Comtech's number was 296198. And if all three of the Comaxis lines were busy, Comtech had no, <laughs> no way to communicate. Um, eventually, I decided that I needed my own technical people. I moved out uh, into my own premises in... Uh, in 1988, January 1988, and hired the first person that I'd ever hired, who was guy Nathan Sure, and he turned out to be an unbelievably unbelievable technical, yeah, um, and he became a business partner, you know, the CTO of the company, a tech director, and uh, you know, together with Nathan, and then yeah, my brother John joined uh, to look after the admin and the accounting yeah. side. A little bit later, and then um, a guy, Darren Lonstein, came on as well. He was the second tech guy. And, you know, together we built a team of people who who delivered, I think, yeah, exceptional customer and staff satisfaction. And that's how we grew the company from, yeah, the w one person in 87 to when I left, we had 1,400 people. And, and I'm really proud that some of the people who worked in that company command unbelievable professions 
positions today. The, you know, the CTO of Vodafone globally, wow. the CTO of ANZ Bank, people who have gone on to found their own companies. So we're an awesome culture and uh, and customers love doing business with us. And that's um, was a pretty simple formula. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please subscribe on whatever platform you're using. It helps us build a community. We want to educate investors and this is what it's all about. And so you're in those early days, so you're all – you got the, the technical people. So you were more the sort of the relationship strategy, pulling the team together and sort of owning the path forward. Does that be fair? A absolutely. Like I think, yeah, when I look at founders today, one of the biggest challenges I think a founder has. So, yeah, in my book, uh, The Dumbest Guy at the Table, there's a chapter that says to grow, you have to let go. Mm. And uh, I was a founder that, you know, when, when Nathan came on board, I, I literally said to Nathan, all is what I want to know is when a customer calls, we give accurate information, a prompt response, and we never keep that customer in the dark. How you, you know, what systems you use to deliver that, what team of people you need to be able to deliver it, that's why you've got the job. And I loved, I loved being a founder. I said, thank God I don't have to worry about the, the tech side. Some founders want to still keep their hands in the, you know, uh, and I, I think for me, the best part of, of, of a company or any team is saying when people are better and more capable than you of certain roles, just be there to mentor them in certain other areas, but, but let them go and do what, they, what they're going to do a whole lot better than you. Gotcha. Makes sense. Uh, and now back from a, um, building a business, obviously you've got the capital side of things. When you first needed capital, where did it come from and who supported you along the way? So I am, I was lucky enough that, yeah, in the business that I established was very different to an Atlassian or a Canva, yeah, where I didn't have to build my own, you know, didn't have to invest in my own R&D. Yeah, I started off and I was, I was basically a, a distributor uh, for US, primarily American uh, products. And uh, I was getting, yeah, 30, sometimes 45 day credit terms really early on in the place. And I was collecting money in seven or fourteen days, so I was right. able yeah. to, I was able to, um, yeah, bring product in very, very quickly. Yeah, I remember I had a, a, yeah, an awesome guy looked after my freight forwarding, a guy Steve Marshall from a company called Premier Customs, and uh, I said to Steve, if I order, yeah, a widget from the U.S., how long will it take? Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget what he said. Provided everything goes according to plan, he said it's going to take seven days from the time it leaves the warehouse in the US to the time it lands in your warehouse. And, uh, and I uh, said, sometimes there's red tape that they want to do inspections, whatever, but generally, so I pretty much air freighted everything in. And because we had pretty high value items, it was probably an extra 2% to air freight mm -hmm. as opposed to shipping it in. Uh, we were able to turn our, turn our inventory and, and debtors over. And so we have, Pretty much self-funded from the day I started. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's very good. Most founders would love to be in that situation. But as I say, yeah, just with respect to if I did built a business and I have been involved in building businesses mm. that where you are investing in your own R&D, that's very different and you do either have to use your own capital mm. or you have to raise external capital when, you, you know, when you're building a product and uh, have to – yeah, 
invest in a tech team, then you've got to build your brand and uh, it, it does cost and take a lot more effort than, yeah, I always say my success was, yeah, I rode on the coattails of successful companies. The company that put me on the map was a product called Novell. Yeah, they were the hottest company in the networking uh, industry at, at the time in the late 80s, early 90s when Microsoft killed them. I am. Um, I rode on the coattails of of Microsoft. I became Microsoft's biggest partner in Australia. So yeah, that was the the advantage of of my business versus owning your own IP. The disadvantage was the more successful um, the company that you represented in Australia. Um, yeah. So when I did represent uh, Novell, I was the second distributor in Australia. Um, they told me if I was as big as the first distributor after. Uh, 18 months, there'll be no change to the dis uh, distribution policy. Within three months, I was twice the size of Datamatic. That was the exclusive distributor prior to me. And another three months later, they recognized our amazing effort by appointing two more distributors. So hmm. it went from one distributor gotcha. to two to four in six months. And we were still able to maintain 70% you know, market share because we, we out-serviced our three other competitors, and they all ev all eventually went out of business. Gotcha. I mean, arguably, the negotiating forty-five day terms early on in your business model was probably part of the success, right? It's, it's, I think absolutely. It was yeah. making sure that we didn't have to, that I didn't need to mm. have external capital. That's yeah. it. Which is great. So, as a founder, author, mentor, investor, yep. can you share two or three pivotal moments that led you where you are today? So I'd say today I am. Uh, I love being a mentor. I love. Uh, I love adding value, and I love. Uh, yeah, you know, personally, yeah, you know, I think everybody wants to, to feel they have a purpose in life, and there's nothing better than, uh, uh, you know, even coming into the the studio today. Um, I came in on an Uber, and uh, I love chatting, yeah. and uh, the. Guy picked me up in this beautiful BMW and I said, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming in style today. And he said, no, I used to work at KPMG, but I'm doing a startup in cybersecurity. And uh, and he said, I can't believe my luck. He said, because I, I, he, he asked me what I did. I said, I'm in venture capital. He said, I can't believe my luck because I'm looking at raising capital. And uh, he asked me for a few tips and I got out the out the, the Uber and he said, I can't thank you enough. I really feel I've, I've, you've given me some great value and that makes me feel good. I've got to be honest. I think uh, as you get older, mm. um, you still want to know that you're relevant. You know, everybody wants to know that they, that they can still make a difference and there's some areas that I'm not, yeah, there's no ways I could build a Comtech again. I know what, um, what effort and uh, the amount of commitment that it required, but I know today I can still give yeah, have a cup of coffee with someone and they'll walk away and say, Dear Dave, I never thought of that. And I'll walk away, I've done something for the day and it makes me feel good. Yeah, it's a great skill to have. Like a lot of people think, you know, getting money off someone, often a bit of advice. And if people take that advice on, you never know that they can take you, often more than where a little bit of money can take you. Yeah, no, and I think that's a, that's a really good point, Travis, because if, it, you know, if I look at, if I look at Comtech, mm. I am, um, I, uh, if you said to me at the time, would you rather have no money and an Avell distribution agreement mm. or $5 million without the Avell distribution agreement, I would have taken, the, the, which I did in the end, I, I was never offered the $5 million, yeah, but yeah. I got the Avell distribution agreement because I knew with Novell I could build an amazing company. 
with $5 million and someone else having Novell, and, you, know, you know, if you wanted to be in the smartphone market today and you didn't have Apple as your major partner, you're not going to, you know, you know, and if you had all the money in the world, you're still going to fail. Sure. Yeah, and so you can make, and we can make a small difference. One of our uh, portfolio companies phoned me and said, uh, Dave, I'm going to the UK. Do you know anyone? I introduced them to someone who actually used to work at Comtech, was the ex-CTO, is, sorry, is today the CTO of one of the world's biggest telecommunications companies. She had an amazing meeting. If they win that opportunity, it could be a company-changing opportunity. So if I said to Jody, would you rather have an extra $500,000? Would you rather have this company as a customer? I know what they would take. Yeah, for sure. I mean, those, those introductions are critical yep. for a business as it's growing. Uh, now, people have influenced you. Who would be the top three? Um, even you can focus on top one, but top three if you can come up with them. Well, the top one is really easy for me, because especially the way you introduced me. Um, you said I run my life by two key principles, face reality as it is, not as it was, as you wish it to be, and change before you have to. And uh, those are not my words. Those come from Jack Welsh. Yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough to be reading a, a Fortune magazine uh, magazine on the way to the US one year, and there was a, they, would, they did book summaries in those days, and one of them was of a book called Control Your Own Destiny or Someone Else Will, and it was about this guy Jack Welsh. And I was blown away by the summary that I went and bought the book, read the book while I was in the States and literally loved the book so much, highlighted it, summarized it, and then ran a management, uh, hmm. uh, you know, an offsite for our entire management te team around. And, and Jack Welch lived by face reality as it is, not as it was as you wish it to be, and change before you have to. And if you look at some of the companies that have failed, many of them, I mean, if you really look at it, yeah, in today's jargon, it would be, yeah, uh, it, it, if you don't want to be disrupted, your business needs to pivot. That's in, that's in, you know, startup speak today. Mm. That's a, and yeah, if you go and look at some of the biggest successes in this country, yeah, Seek, REA.com, car sales, can all thank the lucky stars that they had Fairfax as a, as, as a competitor because Fairfax, didn't want to face the reality that the rivers of gold would eventually come to an end in the format that they were, you know, which was newspapers, mm. and they didn't change before they have to. You know, so they did eventually decide that they needed to be in the space. And I think the only, you know, the only area where they've had some success is in domain. But basically, um, you know, if you compare the profit that REA makes compared to what domain makes, and yeah, and and, and you know, you go and look at the market value capitalization mm. of seek rea and uh and uh car sales yeah it's it's in yeah, magnitudes larger than what fairfax ever was but they just sure. didn't ever want to adapt to a changing industry so i think there's yeah it's really really yeah it, it's an amazing way to always think about running your business i made some changes to comtech based on that formula and uh yeah if I go back and say Novell was a huge chunk of my business, but they were getting killed by Microsoft. Now, mm -hmm. I could have done nothing or I could have signed up with Microsoft. And I said, I don't have to go down with Novell. You know, that's Novell's problem. I'm going to sign up with Microsoft. And it was very, it was very challenging because Novell was the company that put me on the map. Mm -hmm. They gave me an opportunity of a lifetime, but they had lost 
their edge in the marketplace. And if I didn't change before I had to, I wouldn't have been sitting doing a podcast with you today because, yeah, by the time I finished, yeah, I got you. yeah the, our two key products, yeah, which became Microsoft and Cisco, Cisco had also disrupted one of our other partners, were about 80% of our business and Novell was about 0.8% of the business. Gotcha. Yeah, so the, obviously the ComTech, you own the pipe. It's yeah. about sort of getting the best product down the pipe. Yeah, and I think another great lesson I got would have been from my accounting lecturer and it didn't come from the curriculum. I always say that um, I learned more outside of the curriculum than I weren't. And I had a professor, Professor McGregor, who, um, who I, I'll never forget, there's so many companies who go out of business because they do not know what their break-even point is. Mm. They do not even know what, what it costs to open their doors every month. And that rang in my ears every single day that if I said, I'm going to hire Travis, I'm going, to, I'm going to pay him $100,000 a year and my gross profit is 25%. Am I going to sell $400,000 more just to pay yeah. Travis's bill? And, and really what I've seen over the last period with founders is money was unbelievably easy. So I think founders had this, yeah, if I can grow my revenue from a million to $2 million, I'll easily raise money you know, at the next round even though maybe I'd raise five million to add an extra million dollars worth of revenue. And I think really what's happened today is founders are learning that they have to get, you know, they may not refer it to they may not refer to it as their gross profits more commonly refer to what are your unit economics? Mm. Like, you know, do the unit economics make sense for me to add people? And I think founders now are becoming far better business people mm. saying I've actually got to eventually make a buck as opposed to saying I just eventually, you know, as long as I can keep growing the top line, I'll always be able to raise capital. That's gone. Those days are gone. Sure. And, and the founders who know and understand what it costs to open their doors every month and what their break even point is of the guys that are going to be around in the next, yeah, in the next five and 10 years. Yeah. So Craig, I know from iPartners business founding there, just constantly watching the the P and L and understanding the the cost of an investment decision and where where does that break even? What's yep. the benefit? Yeah, it's so critical. Um, so I've talked about sort of you know the who's influenced you. Uh, you've had a varied career. So can you go through a couple of things that worked and a couple of things that haven't worked? Because I clearly wouldn't have been a perfect road forward. So, look, I made yeah. You know, I remember yeah. Someone once who actually did very well in the company said to me, um, I made lots of bad business decisions and it really upset me. And mm -hmm. uh, until I read that um, Frank Lowy in his book, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, the, the, the Lowy set up um, the Westfield Capital Group sure. or Corporation that bought Channel 10, similar time to when Alan Bond bought um, Channel 9 from the Packers. And uh, it was an absolute failure that like, Bond, like Channel 9 for Bond, Channel 10 for the Lowys was. And uh, they asked Frank Lowy, they said, do you regret buying Channel 10? And he said, if I didn't take risks, I'd still be, I'd still be selling salami in Blacktown. <laughs> so what, what made me feel better was when I read that and the person who told me that I'd made really bad business decisions, I thought lucky a, a, a few of the good ones outweighed all the bad ones that I made. And uh, so I'd, I made a lot of bad decisions along the way. I mean, uh, you know, the, the worst one was 
um, we had the dream team. This was probably in about 1994. Um, we were selling Novell, best network operating system in the industry. There's a company called Synoptics. They were for cabling up your networks, and then Cis and uh, Cisco, which which was yeah pretty much the market leading um, router company or for connecting wide area networks at that stage. And one day I woke up and uh, I got a call from Synoptics, the CEO, a guy Steve Wood, he said, great news, we've just merged with Wellfleet and uh, Wellfleet was Cisco's biggest competitor. Mm -hmm. And I just felt the blood drain from my, because you know when you stuff up and it's your fault, it's your fault, but when things happen outside of your mm -hmm. control and you've got no control over them, uh, and I knew I was going to have to make a choice. And uh, between this merged company, Bay Networks, and Cisco, and uh, for a number of reasons, uh, Cisco, at the time, Cisco and the merged company of Bay Networks, which was Synoptics and Wellfleet, were both billion-dollar companies. Mm. And uh, Bay Networks offered us an exclusive partnership in Australia. Cisco said, we'll give you... Um, an exclusive to sell to through distribution, but any direct sales, we're going to take. It was a little bit, um, my tech guys said, the future is where Bay Networks is going. My business partner today, Jeff Levy, who was a director of the company, said to me, who are you going to make the most money with in the short term? I said, no, that's obviously with Cisco. He said, Dave, isn't the the right decision to go with the guys you'll make the most money with in the short term. And if anything changes, you'll sign up. And um, I didn't take that advice. I took the tech guy's advice, my brother's you know, advice he had met, and, uh, and my own, by the way. So I, as the yeah. CEO, I take full responsibility for, and we went with Bay Networks, and it was a disaster. I remember saying to my brother, yeah. the day we made the decision, we've, we've stuffed up. And, and we did because um, Bay, it was an absolute disaster. You know, these two merged companies, there was just so much politics and Cisco just kept growing and growing. And uh, luckily, the CEO of Cisco came to see me about 18 months later. And I've, it was a great lesson for me because um, there's no ways I could have gone cap in hand and said, look, I made a, I made a big mistake. He came to me and, uh, and said, look, when you made your decision, he was the best sales guy in the whole tech industry. A guy, John Chambers, brilliant sales, uh, brilliant mm -hmm. sales. But when you made the decision, it was the greatest. And I was like, mate, like <laughs> he said, the market's changed. And he said, I'm here to extend an olive branch. And uh, I went to our board and said, look, I don't mind taking us over the cliff if I believe in the vision. I said, I'm not taking us over the cliff if I don't believe in the vision. I said, we're selling two of the wrong products, Novell and Bay Networks, we need to be partnering with Microsoft and Cisco. And by the way, we're doing very well as a company at the time. If you just looked at the, at the profit and loss, you know, we did 165 million, made $14 million profit. So on paper, it looked good, but I could just see what was gonna happen. And uh, I had a little bit of pushback and I said, I'll make a deal. One more quarter, and uh, if, if Cisco and Microsoft announce record profits, and Novell and Bay Networks announce more layoffs and lousy results. Either we sign up with Cisco and and and, and Microsoft will find a new CEO. And it wasn't a threat. I just didn't. Yeah, I just couldn't sell. I didn't believe in what. I didn't believe in the vision anymore. And sure enough, 
Cisco and Microsoft still exist today. Yeah. Navelle and Bain Networks don't. And uh, we signed up with them and, uh, and became their biggest partners in Australia. But that was a huge mistake that I made. Yeah, on the investment side, yeah, the biggest mistake I made was not, not investing in Afterpay at a valuation of 20 million. Um, I knew the founder. Uh, he really wanted me to invest, and I said to him, "Nick, that's a, that's a pretty rich valuation." I oh, said, "Yeah,", yeah and I said, uh, "I said if you've got all the money at that valuation, I would grab it. If you haven't, come back and let's have a chat, and then yeah, the rest is history." So yeah, those would be the two biggest mistakes. I think I recovered from the mm. the, the Cisco choosing the wrong partner. We, we by the way, even during that period. Because we were so on the back foot when we didn't go with Cisco, I was offered the opportunity. Literally, um, there was Aussie Mail was a fledgling uh, internet um, company at the time. It was owned by Malcolm Turnbull and uh, Trevor Kennedy and Sean Howard. They said we will. You can have half of it, just to run the business. And had I gone with Cisco, I definitely would have done it. But because yeah, Cisco really was doing everything they could at the time to put us out of business. I just didn't have, we just didn't have the bandwidth. So if I look at what that, you know, Aussie Mail got mm. sold for about a half a billion dollars, not not long afterwards. And um, so uh, yeah, I, I, you know, those are probably two of the biggest mistakes that I've that I've made. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you want to learn more about alternative assets, there's a book here you can read: How You Grow Your Wealth with Alternative Assets. Now back to the episode. If you go back to the, uh, and this is the, one of those rich return type elements, you look at the decision of the Bain, Cisco, you obviously made initially the decision with Bain. If you were to put in probability, how, how, what's the probability you think you had it right? So I think that's the hard thing in decision making. you got two yep. possibly 50-50 trades and you've got to get yourself to the point, I'm going to make this decision now. So, so when I looked at it and I thought, you know, we're going to own 100% of the Bain Networks market in Australia – I think at the time, by the way, if I remember correctly, I think Bay, the merch company was $1.3 billion and Cisco on its own was $1.1. And I just figured that even if Bay didn't grow as fast because we'd be doing 100% of their business and Cisco was, was going to be doing, you know, let's say Cisco doubled every year, which they did mm. uh, for many, many years, we would only own about 50% of that revenue. And, and um, it just seemed... From a financial point of view, pretty pretty good. But really, what I didn't bank on was it, it was going to be a, a winner takes most category, and uh, and Cisco just absolutely annihilated Bay. And I think most of it was because of the politics. Synoptics was a West Coast company. Wellfleet was an East Coast company. You had two CEOs who were. It, it was it was a good lesson about betting on a merged company. So if you ask me today. I'd say the risk would be unbelievably high because I bet on a merged company with so much politics and uh, that it would, that, you know, but I knew straight away, like, as I say, I said to my brother the day, we, I said, we, we've stuffed up, we went, we backed the wrong horse, but yeah. there's nothing we could do. We just had to just keep, yeah, um, as, uh, you know, from a staff point of view, you know, if, if, if I was walking with my head down, everyone would have. And as I learned from uh, a good friend of mine, Steve Amos, you know, sometimes you've got to make, should taste like chocolate, <laughs> and uh, and that's what I had to do until we were able to re-sign with Cisco, and and uh, yeah, as I go back to what I said earlier, right on the coattails of of the most successful companies of which Cisco was, and Bay Networks and and Navelle weren't. Yeah, it's good. I mean, that's the thing when I speak to 
lot of successful businessmen and founders, you've got to make a decision, right? You've got to sort of weigh everything up. Yep. It may not be perfect, but the worst thing you do is not make the decision. And clearly you made it and uh, and then you learnt down the track and you got the chance to make another decision which worked. Exactly. So there's positives there. Um, and this, some of these questions overlap as we go through it, but what lessons have mattered the most through your career and life as well? Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, probably, probably, yeah, from my dad, my word is my bond. And um, I, yeah, I think even if I've said something and afterwards I've realized I've said the wrong thing, I'd never ever go back on my word. And I've, I've three, like you, I have three sons. And, uh, and I always, uh, I am, um, I always tell them if there's only one thing that you learn from me, mm. it's, it's your word is your bond. And, uh, I'd say most of my career stood me in extremely good stead. Every now and then someone may take you for a ride. Like I've, I'm, may have come from the old school where you shake hands on mm. something and it's as good as done. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, as I say, I think, yeah, probably what I've learned as well is that giving someone a go against all odds is every time I've succeeded in my life, it's because someone has, has put their head on a block and said the easy decision is to do this, yeah. but I'm going to go and give Dave a go. Even at Price Waterhouse, my boss Andrew Spalding, you know, gave me a go to set up a microcomputer division within the <laughs> small business division. When at the time they had a, a management consulting group, and I explained to him why I was going to be different, and he gave me a challenge. He said if I could sell some software to one of my clients, long story, a company called RMS yeah. Cypherits, he said. He didn't know that I was a lousy accountant, but a bloody good sales guy. And I said, if I sell it to you know, David Brown at RMS Cypress, can I set up my own business? And he said, yeah. And I sold, I sold the software to, to this guy. And to his word, he said, okay, you can start. And uh, yeah, when I got the Novell distribution agreement, Peter Stanford, country manager for Novell, they were 20 hottest company in the world at the time. His main task, when he set up the office for Novell in Australia was to find a second distributor. There were 27 companies. Yeah. There was this young, young mm. guy with, uh, you know, three people in a, in a tiny little terrace office in Erskine street in the city. There were some public companies like tech Pacific and yeah, you know, can't remember all the other guys, but, um, SciTech and so many companies had applied and, uh, and Peter, took the tough decision of saying the easy decision is to go Tech Pacific, the right decision is to go David Shane and, uh, and gave me a go and we never let him down. And, uh, you know, that's, I think what I've learned is I'd love to be able to do that for, you know, mm. for someone else who, who may say against all odds, I was able to raise capital or I'd be able to got an opportunity be, because even though it was the tough decision, it was the right decision. You must have shown him something though, right? Lined up 20 people and he's pick, picked you. Even the decision he had to make would have been difficult, but there must have been a reason that tipped him to, to your side of things. I, I am, look, as, 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 I, as, you know, from my book, <laughs> the dumbest guy at the table, I'm not good at much, but I'm a bloody good sales guy. And that's what I think I was able to do. I was able to convince Peter that my enthusiasm, my passion, that I would, I would enhance the, the value of Novell in Australia, and um, and I think if you spoke to him today, I think it's tell you that we did. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, right? Given the results, 
Um, so what are your tips for driving long-term wealth? You can talk from a more personal capacity when you look at investing, maybe. So, so there's, yeah, I think it's probably, you know, once again, from my point of view, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And I think I've surrounded myself with fund managers who I really rely on uh, in different asset classes, uh, you know, be it in the property space or, or, or in the um, private equity space and, and, and obviously international and, and domestic equity space. And uh, I've found that what's worked for me is to, as I have my whole life, is when you trust somebody and trust is not putting your hands in the cookie jar, that's, that's mm. a given. Trust is basically saying someone's going to do a way better job than what I do myself is when you do trust someone, I, um, I'd, rather, I'd rather invest more with fewer people than say I'm going to, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit everywhere. And I think that's probably worked for me, you know, I, you know, since I sold my own company. I don't do a lot of my own direct investments in equities or in property uh, because it's not really what my core skill is. And, um, and uh, yeah, that would be my advice is work with people. You know, if, you, if you really do... Th yeah, I think in startups, I've I've dabbled in startups since 2000. I think I've been good at backing founders. And I'd, when I say I dabbled, it would be, or I say I fluked it once in my life. My job was to keep my money, not think, well, that was easy. And uh, so I put in 50,000 here and there. And I think my success had been pretty good in terms of, yeah, I don't want to tell you I made a fortune, but I didn't lose, uh, you know, most of the founders that I backed eventually had exits. And, um, yeah, there were a couple that went out of business. When you talk about a mistake, that was one of my biggest mistakes to come back was backing, backing someone that I didn't like from the minute I met the yeah. person. Yeah. And uh, and it was in 2010. It was a company called E Diamond. They were going to disrupt the the rough diamond industry, the way diamonds were getting sold. Yeah. And uh, I had a friend of mine over here who was doing it, and his business partner was a guy from the UK. I was in South Africa to watch the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup, with my family, and I met this guy, and literally within 30 seconds, I didn't like the guy. Yeah. And um, I phoned my mate over here. I said, Ryan, mate, I wouldn't trust that guy with 10 cents. He said, Dave, you've misread the guy. Mm. I was at school with him in Zimbabwe and blah, blah, blah. I put in a fair amount of money, and that was one of the first investments that I got other people involved. And... I was so right that the guy, I, you know, I should never have given him the money and it was a bad, bad error. So It's a good one. That's what filter I follow as well. If you just don't like someone and you've got to deal with them moving forward, you may as well, you may as well not bother. Yep. It's going to be harder than it was on the first day, particularly if something goes wrong. Yep. Yeah. Um, so where do you see the opportunity and risk for founders today? Sort of going back to your, more yep. of the OIF so, world now. Look, so I think, I think the opportunity for any founder today is, yeah, we, even though the, the markets, you know, with inflation, higher interest rates, we still see as many opportunities today as we were seeing, yeah, 18 months or two years ago. The opportunity for a founder is, do you really have a problem that you're solving? And the best way to know that is when the customer puts their money where their mouth is. And, uh, yeah, so as I said, I came here with a guy in an Uber. Yeah. He's, got a, he, he's got a product and in my book. I have a, a I have a, a thing right at the beginning saying there's different methods of selling today. You know, there's enterprise sales or founder-led sales. There's product-led growth. There's um, marketing-led growth. But no matter what 
model you've chosen for your business, nothing happens till you sell something. Mm. So I think what a founder needs to understand is that there's lots and lots of opportunities. Yeah, and we we don't have a, a, a specific thematic. We don't say we think climate change is is going to be massive, so we're going to have a fund that just does climate. We you know we we think fintech's massive. We we think yeah our thematic is people. We back founders and rely on them to have the domain expertise. Yeah, and that's why our portfolio looks like it does. Where there's yeah ed tech, there's construction tech, there's fintech, there's mm. marketing technologies. It's yeah. Uh, the common theme is, yeah, we love our founders, and I think hopefully our founders love us too. So, it's are you solving a problem? Have do your unit economics scale? That that you know, going back to my point, that making sure that your average contract value, uh, and the you know, once you get to that critical mass, does you know, does every dollar of sale almost drop to the bottom line? So when yeah. you look at yeah, when you look at a company like Zero or like Atlassian or Canva, that they would have a tipping point where every time every additional dollar of revenue, ninety percent of it will drop to the bottom line. And yeah, sure. so how many units do you have to sell to eventually get to that? And I think if founders understand that, no matter what the area there's, there's disruptions will continue to happen. Yeah, in yeah five years or ten years time and. Uh, and just making sure that you do solve a problem and that your unit economics make a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. It totally makes sense. Slight step back. You mentioned at the start around the tax change. Is more. So where did the idea for OAF come from? Obviously, tax changes occurred. You thought opportunity here. What so, made so, you take the next step? So, so that what made us take the next step was, as I said, from the time I sold Comtech, I was investing in startups. The first one was actually a speech recognition company called Tali. So that would have been about 2000, 2001. And over those 15 years, I didn't dabbled in a whole lot of startups. And uh, sometimes we would do little syndicates where we'd say, founders raising $500,000. I'd say, Travis, do you want to put in 50 grand? I'm putting in, you know, Jeff, my part, business partner, and I would always say, we're putting in hundred or $150,000 between the two of us. We're raising another $350,000 and... Uh, and uh, when the government changed the tax laws, Jeff and I thought we'd just do it ourselves, do a 10 or $20 million of our own capital, and turned out that the government, um, the, the rules were that you, you could only contribute 30% of your own capital and the balance had to come from third parties. True. And uh, yeah, I met my business partner, Jerry Stessel, younger guy. He was really keen to do something with us as well. And turned out completely um, coincidentally that Jerry had invested in about four of the startups that we had invested in as well. And uh, yeah, so that's pretty much what, we, uh, it was almost forced on us to yeah, take third party capital. And um, yeah, which is every business as, as you well know, I always say every business has its challenges. And I think, you know, in my business, I always say um, what, what keeps me awake at night is until I've given everybody their capital back, yeah, sure. I don't feel good. You know, and yeah. I know that, you know, as I said at the outset, you know, if someone gave me a hundred dollars, you know, giving you, giving you back a hundred dollars is not why you invest. You might as well go put it on a term deposit and, mm. but at least I could look you in the eye and say, I didn't lose your money. You know, obviously our intention is to, is to get you a whole lot more than that. But 
uh, uh, that's what keeps you awake at night when you've got the third party, you know, someone else's sure. money is, uh, is, is, you know, you can lose your own money. Um, not nice, but for me, losing other people's money is terrible. That's what happened on that e-diamond uh, yeah. investment that I should never have made. Gotcha. Makes sense. Now, OIF, uh, what do you do differently? And why do you do what you do? So then what we, what we try and do differently is that we, we really – we really want to make a difference to our founders aside from just writing that check. We really want to, as I say, I, I like to have looked at every investment that I've ever made and said, if it weren't for my investment, other than what value did I, so for example, there was a company called Range Me that I invested in. And, uh, you know, the founder, Nikki Jackson, her chairman told her, you're not ready to go to the US. Um, I said, Nikki, pack your bags and go. I found her a CTO, one of the best tech guys I've ever met, a guy, Ricky Friedlander. Yeah, I just know without her going to the US and without Ricky, she would never have got the ex exit that she got. Yeah, if I take Holly, I really think I helped them to win Telstra. That was another opportunity where, where Graham Munro said, the easy decision is to go with Alcatel, the right decision is to go with Holly, and he gave us a go. So I like to think, or I think at OIF, we like to think where, what difference did we make that helped that founder realize their dreams? And that's literally what we, we think about every day. Uh, you know, as I say, if, if I can help uh, you know, Jody and Kate win a major telecommunications uh, client in the UK, I know that would be one day that uh, if we hadn't won that deal, we may not have got the outcome that we got to. Yeah. So, so I think our founders would tell us, because if you were pitching to me as a founder and I really wanted to invest in your business, I'd say, Travis, here's 30 founders that we've partnered with, mm. go and talk to any of them yeah. and ask them, would they still take the check from OIF and what, what difference have they made to your business aside from, mm. from the check? Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening. So important that mature the network, right? You've been there, done that, and introducing people, particularly in a market like Australia, which is very relationship-based, yep. having a warm introduction is like gold. You can see why it makes a difference. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, yeah it's sometimes, as we said earlier, sometimes it can be more important to win yeah, those first few anchor customers then to get a check. Yeah. So what um, qualities and character traits are you looking for in a founder? I think we look for people who who are, um, are team builders, people who are willing to to let go, to grow, that um, you're looking for people who are going to be resilient because there's always there's always going to be challenges. Bus you know, business is never, you know, never easy. Um we are you know, looking for founders who really understand the problem that they're solving and understand what the size of that opportunity is. Yep. So, yeah, but, and, but as I said, it's key that we want to know that it's people that we can work with. Um, yeah, you have a chairman by the name of Bob Mansfield. Bob and I are still mates today because we went into business for the, for the right reasons. It wasn't, you know, Bob didn't join our board as chairman because he was – yeah, had been CEO of Optus and CEO of, of, of McDonald's. It was Bob joined our board because we shared the same values and uh, uh, regarding customs and staff. He had just done it a far greater scale than what I'd done. And the fact is that he had been CEO of Optus and, and, and 
and uh, and uh, McDonald's was the bonus. You know, Bob Dwyer sat on my board. He was the coach of the Wallabies when the Wallabies <laughs> won the World Cup. Bob and I are still mates to this day, um, and because we shared very similar values, and and I think that's yeah you know, uh, yeah you know, he owes me nothing. I owe both Bobs nothing, but we're still mates to this day, and I think. Uh, it's what we look for in a founder. They want to be people that if we're going to go for dinner with them, it's not because we have to, it's because we want to. And that's really important for us that we don't just, you know, if there was someone that we thought, geez, this guy's going to build, you know, after pay kills me mm. because Nick's the guy that I would love to go for. Our, you know, before he became um, the, the, the huge success, Nick was a guy that I would love spending time with and going for a beer with, you know, with yeah, which I did. Yeah, my wife and myself went out with Nick and Gab. Yeah, what kills me is yeah, if if someone was a founder who was going to build the next afterpay, but was an arsehole, I'd rather yeah. I, I wouldn't mind saying I'd, honestly I wouldn't give a damn that I missed out on the opportunity. Fair enough. Jeremy, you, you mentioned uh, Bob Mansfield. The first time we actually met was a uh, a lunch arranged by Bob Mansfield. So, ah, right. the, the, the world of the network. Uh, okay, we're moving on towards the end. Just a couple of quick fire questions. And the yep. first one around the first job, I know it was PwC before the C, yep. but was there a job before that? Absolute uh, first job you think you did? Yeah, so my, my dad, as I said, my dad was an accountant, but was always in the clothing game. And I think uh, I, I used to work and sell suits at a, at a clothing store, I think from when I was about 13, Cyril's wardrobe. Uh, and I, I used to also sell um, reject suits. Um, so there'd be, you know, my dad at the factory, they may have a, like a tiny little floor in a, in a suit and uh, together with a, a really good friend of mine, very good friend, a guy, Robbie Brosen, who was the founder of Nando's Chicken. Uh, Robbie and I used to go and sell suits to part-time students who were working at chartered firms or law firms. So I was always, always trying to, trying to make a buck from when I was a young, from a young guy. So Could be where all the sales skills come from. Selling suits. Yeah. Uh, what's a piece of advice for your younger self? Probably don't sweat the small stuff. Gotcha. What motivates you most as a person? I think w waking up knowing that I, I can make a difference for the day. Staying relevant. What's the most important skill for building wealth and why? Luck. <laughs> I think, I, you know, when I look at myself, I think, yeah, I had so many, like, I, I always say I could have written a book on lucky breaks and the book would have been unbelievably thick. But, um, yeah, people say, Dave, you must have worked hard. And of course I worked unbelievably hard and we did a really good job. But if Peter Stanford didn't have the courage to appoint me as an Avell distributor, I would never have got the outcome that I, that I achieved. So, yeah, I think, I think most successful founders will tell you that something happened that, yeah, did they work hard? Absolutely. But I think you need a little bit of luck along the way. You just got to know what to do when you get the luck. Yep. You obviously knew what to do. We did. And I will say that not arrogantly, we did. We did a really good job with our staff and customers. And we knew how to make a buck at the same time. Gotcha. What's the most important habit for building wealth and why? I think it's... Uh, it's uh, I would say being, for me being conservative. Yeah. Uh, I know that's like, I never took debt in my company at all. Yeah. So, so I know other people have, you know, use leverage a lot. Oh, and yeah. uh, 
So I think for me, I, I think I, I've, I'd rather err on being conservative so that when things do go wrong, uh, you, you, you're not, you're not a forced seller or you're not a, you can, you can hang in until, yeah. Another great lesson I got was when I graduated, the guy who made the speech at my graduation said, he brought Toyota to South Africa said, in my lifetime, there've been eight recessions and seven booms. So I guess we're heading for another boom. And, uh, you know, so I think if you can ride out those tough times, um, you'll, you know, the good times will always come back. And, uh, and sometimes I think debt can get you into a lot of, a, yeah, a lot of problems. What is your definition of sustainable success? I think it's, it's overachieving over an extended period of time. I think that, that, you know, having a one, one, you know, it's like if I look at OIF, you know, our first fund's been extremely successful. I don't define that as success. I think if we can go and say in 10 years' time that, you know, funds one, two, three, and four have been unbelievably successful. So, you know, Leicester City won the Premier League once hmm. uh, versus, you know, what Alex Ferguson did, did at Man United. That, in my opinion, is the definition of success. What legacy are you living and leaving? I think I may say it again, but I think that, that well, I always used to say to my um, my family that it's ironic that I'm going to the cemetery after to, after this for a, unfortunately for a friend friend of mine's mum. But I always used to tell my boys on my tombstone they can put from packer to packer that uh, that I, that it didn't matter whether I was speaking to a packer at a Woolworth store or to James Packer, I speak to no. everybody the same, and and that's how I'd like to be remembered. Definitely a nice quality. I can I can uh, pick that up from just chatting to you today. Uh, when you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? I I um, play a bit of bridge with my wife, but I I also um, have a hobby. Um, I tried golf, and I always say to people when they say to me, "Can you play play golf?" I say I can do absolutely anything badly except golf. Yeah. I can't even do that badly. So I decided to take up triathlon, and I nice. and I I try and do something every day whether I'm swimming, riding or running. And, uh, yeah, and I try to think that's, um, I always say, um, it's, it's better for your head than for your, your body. And it makes me feel good. I can sometimes feel a little bit down or exhausted or whatever. And I go and dive in the pool or go for a run and, yeah. and very quickly I feel a whole lot better. This is a tough question, but who's better bridge you or the wife? Well, they have a, championship at the at the at the bridge club um like for each month they, yeah. and uh, my wife will be going this year not me <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. that's good. good to know um what's the biggest mistake people make when it comes to building businesses and why i think they they th sometimes think too far ahead yeah. and may invest thinking they're going to be building this massive company and uh, put on the overheads way ahead of, of when they need to. And, you know, I, I once read a book, um, it was What They Never Taught You at Harvard Business School. It's got Mark McCormack, who was the guy that um, pretty much revolutionized sport. He, he, he made Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, and Arnold Palmer. He was the guy who pretty much made sports, sports stars great. And um, I'll never forget, he said, when he started his business, said, you know, he, he said he, he had come from the, a legal background, but he said he uh, always what he needed was a desk and a phone. You know, he was going to call up, mm. I'll just say Nike and Adidas or whatever, 
Um, yeah, that probably Nike probably wasn't even around at that time, but but that's what he needed to run his business. He built an absolute huge. I forget what the company's mm. called. It was it's the biggest sports marketing company in the world today. But but he didn't look at where it was going to be. He looked at what did he need today to get to that next level. And you know, when you climb Kilimanjaro, mm. you first have to go to base camp, and then you acclimatize, and then you know, you don't you 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 may have Everest as your end goal, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done along the way, and it's just making sure that you that you don't set yourself up for failure. Give yourself the best chance of success. Totally makes sense. Really appreciate your time today. No David. worries at all. Thank you so much for having uh, me, Travis. You know, for those interested in finding out more about David's journey, check out the book. Got it here for you, The Dumbest Guy at the Table, um, but also OIF Ventures at uh, oifventures.com.au if you want to find out more about OIF. Uh, but and again, thank you for uh, thank you for coming along. Thank Appreciate you so much it. for having me. Thank you, Travis. Thank you. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education, and better reviews will get more people coming and listening.